Thanks for tuning to Digital Voices Podcast, where we chat digital transformation, challenges and opportunities across healthcare and life sciences. And now, your host, Ed Marks. Ed here again, and this time we're going to tackle sort of digital transformation, digital health, but from a clinician point of view and a chief digital officer. So really unique combination, although I think a growing combination. And so we want to hear from Dr. Patrick Woodard about that and about his transition that he recently made. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have a great time. And uh, Dr. Woodard, if for those who don't know, was at Renown Health for quite some time. That's in Reno, Nevada. Sydney, have you ever been to uh, Reno or Vegas or any parts of uh, Nevada? No, I have not. I have some friends who have, but I would love to at some point in life, but I have not yet. Yeah, so I don't know that they do any gambling down in Florida. Do they do gambling down in Florida? There's uh, the Hard Rock Casino, but oh, other okay. than that, not that I know of. Okay, yeah, I was just in Vegas recently with my dad on a trip of a lifetime outside of Vegas, but Vegas was our base, and it, it, it's a great town for a lot of things, whether you gamble or not, in terms of entertainment and all that kind of stuff, and Reno as well. So with that, we want to jump right in. So Dr. Woodard, he is, uh, like I mentioned, a chief digital officer, a board-certified physician, culture creator, which we're going to dig into in a little bit, advisor. He's on boards. He's a startup survivor. He's got an amazing, amazing background. And now he's with Methodist Labonner in Memphis, Tennessee. And he made that transition to CMIO, CDO, and clinician to CDO, all that kind of stuff. It's going to be great. So uh, welcome, Patrick. Thank you. Thanks for having me and glad to be here. So Patrick, we asked the same two questions of all of our guests just to get to know you a little bit. And the first one is your favorite music. Like when you're like driving or jogging or whatever you might do, and you put on that headset or ear pods, uh, what do you like to listen to? So we might get into this a little bit later, but I'm a violinist by background, and yet that has very little to do with what I listen to on a day-to-day basis. Um, by and large, I love discovering new music. So uh, it might end up on my playlist for a week or two, and then I'll forget about it until I get my like Spotify wrapped at the end of the year. Um, I love, before COVID happened, I would probably go to a show, I don't know, at least once a month little small bands, little bands, little, little clubs that you feel like you actually get to a really good experience. So um, it really, really spans the entire spectrum, but just anything where you get like a really intimate experience with the music. Yeah, that's cool. No, I do want to dig into the violin a little bit. And yeah, so what is your favorite composer? So like when you were training and such, you know, I'm sure you were exposed to a lot of different composers. What, what sort of are your, your one or two favorites? There's two that come to mind immediately. Um, Jean Sibelius, uh, both of them actually in the early 20th century, Jean Sibelius uh, has one of the most gorgeous violin concertos. I, I, it, I think it is the most gorgeous violin concerto. Um, and so that's one that, um, I, I wanna say that's what I played when I auditioned for a conservatory, um, just absolutely, um, kind of heart-wrenching opening and just gorgeous. And then um, kind of in that similar early 20th century side of things, um, Prokofiev is one of my absolute favors and favorites and almost all, almost everything he writes is just absolutely um, 
filled with emotion and it really kind of just grabs you. It's probably not for like the first time classical listener, but um, it's definitely one of those that once you get into it, it's like hard to escape. All right, when we're done, the reason I ask this question is because, you know, sometimes people want to know. It's like th those who aren't exposed necessarily to violin or violinists, you know, they might want to know what, what should I try? And I'm going to definitely go after the Sibelius uh, later today. No, I love and I love listening to new things. And this is awesome. So what about your life message or mantra? Like what drives you? What's that thing that keeps your mojo going? Well, it, what a great question. And I don't have a really good answer except for that you have to just keep moving. Um, I think if you look at what get, what gets me up every day is that constant drive to continue to improve something, what that, what that may be. When I was a kid, it was like you would take apart a radio or you try and figure out what makes it work. And most of the time you didn't get back, get it back together again, but it was that I want to learn how this works so that I can maybe do it better. Now, not that I was going to go make a radio better when I'm like seven years old, but you know, um, and that's what I think drives me as a physician. It's what has driven me um, as a technologist. It's driven me as a startup founder is just this idea like, how do we take a product that may might be okay, but everybody knows that you can always squeeze an extra 2% out of it. Um, yeah. So it's really that how do we how do we continually improve and continually grow? Yeah, that's that's a winning mindset right there. Tell us a little bit about your story. And, and we actually already touched on key portions that I'm really interested in, you know, the whole violin and all that kind of stuff. But tell us a little bit about your story, personal or professional, and sort of how you got to where you were or are. Absolutely. Um, it's really hard to separate personal from professional, I think, because they have blended together so much over the course of the last several decades. I, I thought for so long I was going to be a professional violinist. I thought I, that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a concert violinist. I would work in a symphony and that's going to be my career. And I realized I went to the Peabody Institute in Baltimore. Mm. Um, and I realized when I was there that um, if I wanted to do multiple things, it was very difficult to do it if you're focusing 100% of your energy directly on violin. Um, I was practicing four or five, six hours a day I was a double major at the time, so um, I was, you know, trying to squeeze by in my engineering classes, um, which was not super easy. And I remember a, a very distinct conversation I had with my violin teacher who asked me how I was doing in my academic classes. And I said, well, I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm getting like B's and some A's. And he told me, and he was dead serious. He just looked me straight in the eye. And he said, if you're not failing your academic classes, you'll never be a violinist. At which point I was like, Hmm. <laughs> Maybe this is something I should be rethinking. Um, and I realized, I don't know, it was right before Christmas break. So it was easy for me to come back, um, visit my parents, have that what, three weeks off or whatever, and sit back and think like, what do I value more? And it turned out that I, I kind of just, I don't know, I woke up, it snowed, I woke up in, in the middle of the night and was able to kind of sit back and think, you know, I can always be a violinist part time. But if there's anything else that you want to do, it's hard to do it part time. Mm. And I'd always before going to music school or deciding to do that, I thought maybe I wanted to be a physician or be a doctor. And people will definitely tolerate a physician who's a part time violinist, but they will not tolerate a violinist who's a part time doctor. <laughs> so I, it was kind of a, a moment for me, but I still had that kind of interest in doing something else. So 
I kind of followed the, you get stuck in this doctor pipeline where it's like, once you get sucked in, there's really no exit until you come out at the other end. I mean, some people are ma managed to find a way, um, but it's, it's really just like you're in a pipe and you're, you go through the pipe until you get um, plopped out at the other end and you're a physician. And um, by the time I was in med school, I knew I was kind of interested in health policy. I'd had a really influential college professor um, who had shaped that kind of policy bug and said, and I was able to really see that you can make huge dramatic changes in the way that we run the country with only a few lines of, of, of text in a law, um, almost said code, but we're gonna get into that in a minute. Um, just a couple lines of text in the, in the law that can dramatically change the way we deliver healthcare or, or deliver science policy. And so I thought I wanted to do that. I stayed kind of focused on that DC, um, in that DC mindset and went to residency in DC. I wanted to become an internist. I liked that kind of generalist attitude that internists have the ability to care for the whole person and not focus just on a single aspect. And um, during residency, we had a really bad outcome that could have been it may not have been able to be prevented, but certainly a lot of the um, events surrounding it were things that should not have ever occurred. And one that I realized that technology would have solved. I kind of mentioned that I tinkered along the way and in college I'd kind of, I'd spent a lot of time coding and just writing my own software for really no purpose other than just for my own use. I would write apps that I would use to then study with the app. Um, this was kind of like before apps were like a thing that you thought about. So it was just something that I had like on my TI-86 calculator, <laughs> not that useful today. Yeah. Um, but I took that kind of same concept, wrote an app and took it to the uh, hospital and said, hey, would you like to use this? I think we could solve this problem and prevent it from happening again. And they said, yeah, we'd love to. How much is it? And I said, you know, I don't know. <laughs> I just was writing this in my spare time. So um was very fortunate able to commercialize that and then uh, sold that in 2016 at which point i was a hospitalist in nevada and uh, wanted to kind of keep my hand in the technology side of things because what i had seen in the health policy side where you can write a couple of lines of text to insert into a law you can do on this on the technology side as well you can dramatically change the way that we care for thousands or tens of thousands or millions of patients um, with maybe a few lines of code or the way that you tweak or implement software, um, as long as you're doing it with a kind of humanistic mindset along the way, you can dramatically change and, and improve the way that we deliver care. Um, I liked that a lot. Um, I got connected with the right folks at the health system and um, moved into a CMIO position over the course of several years and, and uh, really was able to kind of learn and grow from those around me. and. Uh, apply kind of a thoughtful kind of uh, patient first mindset in terms of the way that we implement tech, but um, also thinking about how is this something that we're able to step back and, and say, what do we want to, who do we want to be when we grow up and, and focus and, and have that kind of laser focus throughout the, the work that we do. No, that's great. That's super, super interesting. Just all the different aspects of your journey. Uh, it's quite remarkable. So obviously you're a leader. I always like to ask leaders because, you know, a lot of our listeners are leaders themselves and everyone's always looking to grow. You know, what, what sort of things do you do to help sort of stimulate your growth as a leader and, you know, keep growing and learning? You know, it's really important for me to, to have that growth mindset. Um, I like to use 
the idea or a concept of like um, sitting if if there are like four or five of us sitting in a room, I like to imagine that there's an object in the middle of the room that we're all looking at, but we're sitting in different corners of it. And I might be looking at it and I can see that the, the, the side I'm looking at is red and it's round. That might give me an idea. The person across the room from me is looking at the same object, but on their side, it's actually, it's, it's dark and it's um, pointy. Um, and then somebody on the other two diagonals are able to see it from a completely different direction and you're able to get a completely different picture of, of what that object may be. And especially in a complex um, system like a health system or healthcare in general, most of the objects that we're looking at are multifaceted and you're, but you're only ever looking at it from your point of view. You're only ever able to see this is my side, this is the red round side. And recognizing first and foremost that that you are only viewing it from a single vantage point and that you're only seeing it from um, your own experience doesn't allow you to be able to perhaps even have an accurate depiction of what you're looking at. So I think it's really, that's the first part of it is, is making sure that you're always listening to those who are around you because that's the only way you're going to be able to get to a level where you feel like you have a better understanding of, of what you're working with or what you're working on. And then number two is um, reading a lot. Um, I spend probably 20 plus percent of my time uh, reading and it's sometimes it's just as simple as just keeping up to date with what the news is. It's a, it's easy to get sucked into a news wormhole that, that maybe isn't that helpful, but there's always something that you can learn from a completely different perspective. I like reading about the arts a lot because there are a lot of those kind of nuances that we're able and that kind of humanistic element that you can bring to work um, and bring into the work that we do. Uh, every day. Um, and then I don't fly as much anymore with COVID and everything, but that kind of like protected time in the air when you have like two, three hours, they're able to kind of get through half of a book and decide if it's worth reading the second half on their second layover after your layover um, is really important. And so I, I try to get through at least one or two leadership books a month, but in reality, it probably ended up being it ends up being about three or four. Um, and I think those are really important, even the bad ones. Um, I think there's still something, there's usually something in there. And at least, <laughs> at least those, there's probably a summary chapter at the end. So right. I'd say it's those two things. I think it's read a lot and read continuously and uh, listen to those around you. Yeah, that, that's great advice. You know, it's, it's uh, something that when you hear it, it's like, yeah, of course. But then when you reflect, you, we might not do it as much as we think unless we're intentional about it. We are going to shift in a second to all things chief digital officer and clinician, but I, I'm really curious and I'll let you riff on this question for a second. And that is because it, it's very intriguing and you're, you know, unique in terms of your, uh, you know, your professional violinist, essentially. Uh, tell us about violin, leadership, clinical, engineering, whatever you want to say, but the violin being the central part of that. Um, it's it's one of those things that you, you don't even know that it's there, but I have thought about it more over the past several years, especially because for a couple of years, I didn't get to play very much. I, I still play with an orchestra. Um, and it's one of my favorite things to do because it's so different from what I get to do all day, every day. Yeah. And one of the things that I think is the most important is as a violinist, um, you're part of a section and you're required to, you have, you cannot be a good, orchestral violinist without 
first before even playing a note listening to what's happening and the silence is important what the other musicians are doing is important and you learn very early on that um, standing out is not necessarily favorable if you like if you there's 20 30 violinists in, in an orchestra if you hear just one of those and it's not a solo that's not a good day so you know stand out within the context of what you're playing and not just on your own but that there's this also this concept concept of being able to lead from within the section um, leadership can be about having a title or it can be about being somebody that people look up to and value your opinion and your advice and in an orchestra you know very easily who those leaders are even if they're not at the front of the section because they're accurate more often they want to help you during rehearsal they'll turn around and make sure that you have the right markings in your in your music um, and leadership doesn't always have to be from the front it can happen from within and so by recognizing that leadership is something that everybody can aspire to no matter where you are, it's very easy to then start to live those values yourself. And I'd say the last part of it is um, before any orchestra gets on stage to play, they all have uh, previously agreed on what they're going to play. And I think that's probably the most important part that you can bring um, when you come to work in business or in healthcare is have we all agreed on where we're going to go or what we're going to play together? Because then the rest of it is so much easier. If I show up with a different set of music than you guys, uh, I don't know that we're going to get too far. Yeah, no, that's, that's profound. I knew that I knew there'd be something there, you know, and thought I'd challenge you with that question and, and you delivered. Yeah. There, there's so many uh, comparatives metaphors in terms of, you know, if you want to make great music, you know, and great leadership, uh, there, there's a lot of commonality. All right, so you became, you, this is your first chief digital officer role. You show up, you, you're, you're, you're a trusted source at Renown, done great things there, everyone knows you. You move out of state, new city, new health system, new role. Tell us, and, and we're gonna get in culture in a little bit, um, but tell us like, what are the first couple of things that you did upon your arrival? You know, there's probably a thousand books on what your first hundred days should look like. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you the three things that I did that I think are the biggest things that I would do every single time. Um, and that's, first of all, have a really good understanding of your current state. Learn, again, I guess it goes back to learning from those around you. I mean, you don't know anybody there. You don't know anybody in the city, but you do know that you have at least a shared vision of where you want to go. And I, having an understanding of where you are now, um, is what will then inform like where your delta is in terms of, of where you want to go. Um, it doesn't always, it may not always be favorable and um, there may be people that you want to help uh, kind of console along the way because um, there, you may discover things that are, are not, uh, not perfect um, because there is no perfect place. And there are going to be some really other, there are going to be some other amazing things that you absolutely want to retain and um, coming in without recognizing that you have those there you could accidentally throw those out. And you don't want to throw any baby out with the bathwater, especially if it's something that's just absolutely golden. Um, the second part of it is um, assessing the organization's appetite for change. If you're coming in and more than likely your boss hired you with a decision that um, we want to change this aspect of it or we want to focus in this area, um, but you want to be able to see how far out in the organization that concept uh, persists. And there will be in every organization folks who are perfectly okay with it 
as it is, there are going to be another set of people who want it to be completely different. Um, and then there's going to be a large group of people in the middle that that's the, that's where the real gold is, is, is what are we, what is our appetite for change or growth? And getting a good sense of what that is within an organization is really critical um, because that determines the last part, which is find your, finding your allies for change, um, finding your allies for growth and transformation. Um, and there may be a huge pool to, to choose from, or maybe it's not that big, and it uh, maybe that makes it maybe that makes it even easier because then you don't have to spend as much time out um, working with with a broader group of stakeholders uh, on a close knit basis, but um, recognizing that those always exist. So I'd say it's those three things: um, knowing what your current state is, um, assessing your appetite for change, and then um, finding your allies for change. No, that's great, and. What advice would you have for clinicians? So we have clinicians that listen uh, to digital voices of, as well. And, you know, a lot of them do want to move into this chief digital officer role, fairly new role in healthcare, growing as it should. And some clinicians like yourself kind of leading the way, moving into those roles. What advice would you have for clinicians out there who are thinking, hmm, that looks pretty interesting? I'd start by looking at the past and I really, there's a story I read, I can't remember where I read it now, but um, about a hundred years ago, maybe a little more than that, there were a bunch of these companies who were hiring CEOs, chief electricity officers. And you may have heard this story, but um, I don't know a single company these days that has a chief electricity officer. And the reason that they were hiring all these was that they would step back and they'd say, well, there's this brand new technology. I'm sure it's going to be really impactful on the way that we're going to run our business, but I just don't know how to use it. So they would hire somebody who was maybe well-versed in electricity or how that worked. Um, but today, if you go into any, comp any company, there's not, I mean, maybe like at the power company, there might be a chief electricity officer, but by and large, you don't see that anymore. Yeah. And I hope that's true for my job too, because I really would like, the literacy rate for digital technologies to be so pervasive that you don't need a chief digital officer anymore. So for clinicians who I think are interested in this is really bone up on your clinic, your uh, digital literacy. You've spent years and years studying for your boards, um, maintaining your licensure, um, practicing good medicine, being a good bedside nurse. Um, and those skills are there that's like part of your personality you cannot divorce yourself from that like that's going to be there forever um but technology offerings um come and go and what may be popular today may disappear by tomorrow um or it may come back in a completely different iteration five or six years from now so just being first of all aware of what's happening and then recognizing i think and this is maybe the most important one for people who are looking to move into like a chief digital or chief innovation or chief information officer role is um, be comfortable with no, but try to be, try to say yes, right? Yeah. Because as a system, you wanna be able to think, how are we able to move forward? And there are a hundred great ideas, but the capacity to move forward on a hundred doesn't exist. You may only have the capacity to move forward on 50 or five. Um, it doesn't mean that any idea is not a good one. So how do you say, how do you try to say yes to the most possible while also just generally being okay with occasionally apologizing to someone to say, to say, I have a hundred great ideas and yours is one of those. We'll get to that one next. Yeah. 
No, that, that's really good. And I love that whole concept of basically, yeah, chief digital officer, great, uh, great, needed right now, need to focus on it, but ideally long-term, don't need it, love it. Um, that's a great concept. Let's talk about culture, because you know everything you've talked about, pretty much, even the orchestra, right? A lot of it is the culture's foundation. And so I know that one of your areas of passion is really around this concept of culture creation. Can you can you dive a little bit deeper into that and and why is that a passion and you know your thoughts around culture? For me, it's how do I function well as a team um, without kind of a shared culture as a team. You can certainly have. I mean, you can row in the same direction, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing it because you love it. And I want I want a team who loves to all be focusing and rowing in the same direction. And it maybe not, not maybe not everybody is rowing. Maybe somebody's like beating the drum. Maybe somebody's you know I don't know building the engine in the back so that we have, can stop rowing one day. Um, but that's all part of a really good high functioning team. But that requires a level of authenticity. And I think that's on, at every level of leadership and and enabling that for your staff, your employees, your associates to be able to come in and, and be authentic. But you have to model that first. Um, I think if you were to ask teams that I've worked with, they would probably tell you that they didn't they would always know how I came in every day. You know, it's like I'm in a good mood because I'm walking in there and like stopping at every desk and saying, hey, and maybe I maybe I am. I mean, I was always late to my first meeting because of that. But then there'd be other times where they'd be like, OK, well, uh, somebody needs to go get Patrick a Diet Coke because he looks like he's in a bad mood. And I don't know. I don't know that you necessarily want to bring everything from home in, but you do want to at least be able to be authentic in the sense that if you want to. Um, one thing that I did at uh, my last place was we had a Teams channel that we called uh, Sick Beats. And it was just a Teams channel dedicated to people putting their favorite um, song on there. And so like throughout the day, you'd get kind of a, you'd get a ping and it'd be somebody had been listening to a tune that they were um, jamming out to while they're working. And you, it was really cool because you got a really wide range of stuff from like death metal to uh, like uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival to like somebody recorded their own, they had like their own folk band and would put it up. It was really cool. And like uh, enabling people to feel comfortable enough to, to have that is I think really important, but you have to be able to live that level of authenticity yourself um, and encourage that among your team. So that's, that's really what I think it is. And um, as you get to grow and, and live with your new team, understanding what authenticity looks like for them um, and how to enable that. Yeah, that, that's brilliant. I, I'm a big believer in the same and it, it requires a level of humility, you know, to be authentic, right? Because it means that you're not perfect. You're going to show people the, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, but at the same time, it is what creates the culture, it builds the trust and, and, you know, helps helps the team coalesce and really come together. So super important. What what one piece of advice, sticking with culture here, uh, would you give a leader who's who's hearing this and they're like, yeah, they're, he's right. Patrick's right. Um, okay, how do I start? And maybe it is just being authentic, but what, what is there anything else that you might give as, as advice for someone to start in terms of you know, creating a, a, a great culture? I want to hit what you had on, uh, hit what you said on humility. And um, it, there's a story that I remember very, very distinctly from 
when I was giving a recital, I think it was my senior recital before going to conservatory. And um, my violin professor at the time, who was an absolute genius of a violinist, um, told me about a, a string quartet that he used to play with regularly. And he said the first time they made a mistake in a performance, they celebrated. And the reason for that was that now the pressure to be perfect is no longer there. Mm. And I'd say the same should go for you as a leader because you will make a mistake at some point. And now the pressure to be perfect is no longer there. And once you accept that you aren't and you're willing to accept those mistakes as learning moments and a, 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 an opportunity for growth, that's for me the best way to just recognize that we're all going to be able to get there together because we all have to be able to step back and accept um, our humanity. Yeah. Now, this is fa this fascinating and, and full of good stuff, Patrick. You know, I one of the reasons I love doing this is I just love to learn myself. And so I get to hear from awesome people like yourself doing amazing things and helping save people's lives. Look, we, we chatted on everything from violin to some engineering, school books, how to develop culture, leadership, transition to CDO. I'll leave you with the final word. Is there is it something I didn't ask that you want to talk about or maybe a topic we touched on, but to double down on? I'd say it's finding that uh, negative time, that time like where you have negative space, I guess I should call it, um, is I think really important. And I encourage that of everybody that I work with. Um, block your calendar and find that time to read, find that time to be able to step back. And I mean, Google embodied it as their 20% of time, a bunch of other companies have done it. But even if your company doesn't have something like that, you can create it for yourself um, because you will find that some of your best ideas and your best moments for growth come in that non-dedicated time. You can spend 40 hours a week doing email, I guarantee it, but you haven't gone anywhere. So take the time, step back, put eight hours on your calendar in the week, two, three hours at a time and figure and really use that for yourself. Even if you go and take a walk or make lunch, as long as you're using that as a, a moment for reflection, you're gonna get a lot farther than if you hadn't, guaranteed. Wow, Patrick, I don't know how to, how to end it any better than just saying thank you. This has been really a treat uh, for me and for Sydney and, and our listeners. Thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you for being our guest on Digital Voices. It's been my pleasure. Thanks, Ed. Hi, this is John Lynn from the Healthcare IT Today podcast. If you like the latest rumors, insights, and happenings in healthcare IT, you'll enjoy hearing my colleague Colin Hung and myself debate and share the latest happenings from the world of healthcare IT. Find the latest episodes or dig into our archive at healthcareittoday.com or search for Healthcare IT Today on your favorite podcast application or YouTube. When it comes to healthcare technology, we love this stuff, and we can't wait to have you join in on the discussion of everything health IT. Thank you for listening to Digital Voices Podcast with Ed Marks. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe on your preferred streaming service and leave a rating and review. And most importantly, thanks again for listening.